I'm not leaving my room until I see UNHCR. Uh, I want uh, asylum. Today on Context, running from religion. Saudi teenager Rahaf Mohammed ran from her country and her religion, claiming she faced certain death if she didn't adhere to Islam. Her escape to Canada has sparked international attention and debate over extremes in religion and increasing polarization within faith. Today, we examine the issues within our synagogues, our churches, our temples, and our mosques. Are you fed up with religion? I'm Molly Thomas. And I'm Sheldon Neal. And this is Context. So what drove 18-year-old Rahaf Mohammed to leave her family in Saudi Arabia and denounce her religion? We speak with Muslim women leaders about the oppression the teen says she felt. Is this a cultural or religious issue? South of the border, have evangelicals become too involved in politics? Religious author Jonathan P. Walton talks to us about how America's faith identity may need a makeover. And here in Canada, church numbers are on the decline. Are people fed up with the institution? Pastors in Canada talk about why millennials and others are leaving religion and how they're working to keep their congregations engaged. Plus, a multi-faith panel discusses extremism in their own religious traditions. The story of Saudi teen Rahaf Mohammed has gripped the world. Saudi officials seized her passport at the Bangkok airport after she ran from her family. She barricaded herself in a Thai hotel room and asked the world for help, saying she needed refugee protection for leaving her religion. Activists and organizations reached out to Human Rights Watch Asia director Phil Robertson, who helped not only bring Rahaf's story to media, but also got, get her the UN Refugee Agency involved so she could eventually find safety in Canada. He joins me now from Burma. Phil, what is it about Rahaf's case that gained so much attention? Well, I think that there was a certain drama, there was a certain uh, degree of excitement connected to the actual life and death aspect of it. I mean, she was really struggling for her life. She was fighting for her life when she barricaded herself in that hotel room. And I think that people respond to that. They responded to her desperate tweets. They responded to her courage. They responded to her uh, demands that she be allowed to live the life that she wanted to. And since she's 18, she's a considered an adult according to international human rights law. Uh, she should be allowed to determine her future. What happened once you were alerted to her case? Well, I had to. First of all, I tried to get in touch with her. I did very quickly and then uh, find out more about why she was fleeing, uh, who she was, what her situation was. And as we sorted through that the first, uh, I'd say, first hour or two, uh, we quickly realized that her bona fides were, were, were real and that, you know, this was someone who was in grave danger if she was sent back to Saudi Arabia and that we had to help her. You were on the phone with her in Thailand. I'm curious, what made you believe her story? You know, this is someone that, you know, is as she appears. She's exactly what she is. She's a, a woman who was uh, fighting for her life. She, is, she expected that she would be able to get through Thailand very easily. All of a sudden, she stopped. 
she's facing her father and her brother who have come to Thailand to try to drag her back. And we saw this case like in the Dina Ali case that had taken place in the Philippines in April 2017, where a woman who was trying to flee an abusive situation in her home was dragged back to Saudi Arabia and never heard from again. And so we didn't want that to happen to Rahaf, and we were determined to do whatever we could to try to help save Rahaf. Have you spoken to her since? Um, how is Rahaf doing? I have not spoken to her directly. Uh, I've been in touch with her a number of different ways. Uh, my understanding is she's doing fairly well. Um, you know, she decided after doing a number of interviews that she was going to hold off and doing more interviews. Uh, she wanted to sort of set her uh, personal life in order, and I respect her for that. Um, I really respect Canada also for taking her in. And, you know, the fact that the foreign minister went to the airport to receive her, I mean, that's really that's really important. That's special. That that shows that Canada cares, that this is a top priority issue for the Canadian government, and we greatly appreciate that. Rahaf ran from culture and religion. As Human Rights Watch director for all of Asia, how often do extreme religious views lead to unsafe situations, especially for women? Well, we're dealing with uh, a number of cases in Southeast Asia where politicization of religion has made it very dangerous. You know, this is happening in Indonesia, where uh, extremists are on the rise. It's happening in Burma, where Buddhist extremists are trying to exterminate the, the Islam religion in, in parts of Burma. You know, religion is an important part of people's lives. But when it becomes something that is in the hand of politicians trying to use religion to gain uh, power and uh, continue their support from the people, it becomes very dangerous. Wow, a fascinating story that grips us all. Thank you, Phil, for joining us. Thank you so much. We want to delve deeper into why Rahaf was running in the first place. Was it from religion or from culture? We have two Muslim leaders to weigh in on this. Shima Khan is a monthly contributor with The Globe and Mail. Barbara Lois-Helms is a Muslim leader who also serves as a military chaplain. Great to have you both on today. Thank you for, Thank you for having, having us. Shima, you wrote a column uh, in The Globe about how Rahaf rejecting Islam hit a nerve with you. Why is that? Well, uh, when I read her story, it reminded me of my own journey when I was young, uh, younger. Um, I was about uh, 26 years old and I was in uh, at Harvard doing my PhD and I was learning more about the faith I was born into, which is Islam. Mm -hmm. But along the way, I, I came across many disturbing attitudes regarding the position of women um, in the faith, and it was conveyed to me by, by fellow uh, Muslim students. I, it was made to feel as though the faith itself uh, regarded women as second class. And I, I, I reached a juncture where I thought to myself that if my faith tells me that I'm second class as a woman simply because of the way I was created, I didn't want any part of it. Barbara, how do you look at it? Do you see Rahaf running from religion or culture? Uh, I think sometimes it's hard to to separate the two, but I definitely wouldn't call this Islam with a capital I. This is how a religious faith in a particular culture, in a particular political climate has been interpreted. And so I hear somebody who talks about the need to have some kind of voice or agency. So I would look at it through the lens of counseling, youth mentorship. So this is something that's not a specific Islam versus another uh, religion. This is this is 
part of a journey that it has to have a balance between um, what's happening on the inside, how a person is supported uh, to grow and to be a full person. Uh, and these are things that there are certain types of things that have been associated with Muslim cultures that we do have to work through. Okay, let's go to what Rahaf had to say. This is one of her tweets. She uh, she talked about she was seeking refugee status that would protect her from getting harmed or killed due to leaving her religion. She goes on in a New York Times article to talk about becoming an atheist because she was worried about being killed. Of course, that is uh, not the situation uh, for most pe for people here in Canada. Um, she met as a woman, though. How did you reconcile um, coming to a place of your faith when you still were feeling that others were looking at you differently? You talked about even being educated and, and men would look at you differently from within your faith. I mean, that's happening in Canada. Right. Um, so, I mean, what I decided to do was I decided to go and read the Quran um, with meaning. Yeah. Uh, with something I hadn't done the first 25 years of my life. Um, I think, which is pretty sad uh, looking back. So I decided, you know, I was going to find out for myself what, what was the message in there instead of going through these male filters. Um, and, and the more I read, the more I found, uh, you know, I found what I was looking for, which was um, affirmation of my purpose and, and, real, uh, you know, affirmation that my creation is a blessing and that I have meaning and purpose in this life and that no one is inferior or superior by the way they're created. I have a firm foundation and, and hope and uh, belief and, and all these, um, if you like, supports that I need to, to function as a human being and thrive. Barbara, what would you say to young Rahaf? Maybe she's watching. Um, you know, she has reportedly, you know, been very indignant against the faith, uh, drinking wine, eating pork, very public shows of, I don't want anything more to do with this religion. What, what would you say to her? I think there's one process which is moving away from something. And she's been very clear that where she was was a place of constraint and distress. Uh, it's a lot more challenging to move towards something. So I would say in Canada, we have the benefit of being able to, we have the freedom to pursue our aspirational goals and to build a quality life. So it's not enough to be against something. What are you for? Um, and what do you want to build? So for me, I'm a Muslim by choice. And like Shima, I, there's beautiful things that you can find, inspirational things that are in the foundation of, of the faith itself. But then there's that struggle that definitely is there in terms of who is interpreting it in what way. And there are many different voices within that. So she's chosen to, or she's responding to uh, a situation that uh, has had all those negative voices. And so now, instead of responding or reacting against something, what is she looking for? And I would encourage her to go where health and wholeness uh, is to be found. It's definitely a time of discovery for her. Uh, Barbara Shima, great to have you on the program. Loved having you both on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Before we return to Canada, what is happening in the very political Christian world of America? Let's bring in Jonathan Walton. He's the Area Ministry Director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship based in New York and New Jersey, as well as the author of 12 Lies That Hold America Captive and the Truth That Sets Us Free. Jonathan, great to have you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So Jonathan, I've been talking to so many young Christians I've, that say they're running from the word evangelical. Uh, do you understand why? Absolutely. I think it's because it's a label that's placed on a group of people by a group that many of us have traditionally never been a part of. And I think that's unhelpful for a generation like mine. 
Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about your book. Uh, it points mm -hmm. to America's 12 identity issues intertwined with faith. Uh, why write about this right now? I think for me personally, I was came of age when Obama was president. My when I came to graduate from college, and then I I had a daughter when Trump was became president. It's two very different things. So I think for me, there's inherent tension relationally and systemically. I think lots of people are wrestling with who Jesus is versus what America, the West, and the Reformation, and all these different things um, claim him to be. And so I think it's an important topic for anyone who says they want to follow Jesus or ask questions about him right now. So Jonathan, what is the largest disconnect then? I mean, there's, there's multiple lies that you point to, but what is the largest disconnect then for not knowing who Jesus is? I think the largest disconnect is that we are unable to engage with scripture because we're unable to engage with the assumptions we already have. So I think for most of us, we think we're familiar with something and what that does is stop us from asking questions. So we've not been asking questions for decades. And I think that's why we've lost who Jesus actually is and who he claims to be himself. Jonathan, we always talk about a separation of church and state. Uh, I'm reading your book right now. It seems like uh, from your words that we've made God the state in some way. Absolutely. I think all of us are longing, are looking for a Messiah, looking for the kingdom of God, looking for a place to belong. And I think Peter actually summed it up the best when he said, you know, is now the time when you're going to reinstate Israel and overthrow Rome? And Jesus says no and gives a great commission. And so I think there's something in us that's always looking for a place to belong and a God to follow. Um, sadly, that God is not Babel. It's not Rome. It's not Israel. It's not America. It's actually the kingdom and Jesus himself. So you work with young people, Jonathan. Uh, do you see do. them fed up? Do you see them running away from that type of religion? Well, I think they are confused if they grew up in the church. because They're going to like two churches, many of them. For folks who didn't grow up in the church, they, they really, it's not relevant to them at all. So they're not necessarily fed up because they don't engage with it. They're, it's usually something they're confused by or something they want like, why is this relevant in my life? Mm -hmm. And so it's actually a great conversation on campus because they don't, have any context for denomination and stuff like that. And if they do, they're already straddling, trying to figure out how to honor their parents and figure out Jesus for themselves. Jonathan, loving the book. Thank you for joining us today. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Still ahead, all religions are susceptible to extremism. We asked a panel of religious leaders how they are addressing the issue of extremism in their faiths. And are more people becoming disconnected from the church? Pastors weigh in on growing the church in an age of skepticism and division. Coming soon to context, China and its human rights abuses. Canadians Kevin and Julia Garrett were unjustly detained by China. Their own perspective on diplomacy through captivity. That's coming soon. I was really raised with an idea of a, a sort of a vengeful God, mm -hmm. um, an angry God, not a God is love kind of God. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, hell was real, and I don't believe that anymore. The idea that we're bro born broken and full of sin, I, I don't believe that either. I believe we're born whole. So I was brought up with a very, you know, a stern idea of God, a sort of, you know, someone that you should be afraid of. As time has gone on, I'm, this was 35 years ago that I left. I, I really uh, don't believe anymore that you need God to be good. I think that you can be pretty good without God. A lot of people are fleeing, you know, the church, the, the synagogue, the mosque. 
Um, and I think what's happening is that there is a disillusionment. I mean, I still go to church. I go to Unitarian Church. I'm not anti-church whatsoever. But in terms of fundamentalist or orthodox religion, I think uh, people are becoming disillusioned by some of the things they're seeing. The sexual abuse of children that's gone on in the Catholic Church and that's been covered up, that's very disillusioning for people. The lack of leadership roles for women in many churches is disillusioning. The rejection of people who are LGBTQ. Uh, people are sort of tired of that kind of thinking, uh, denying climate change, all of that. So I think there is, you know, just a disillusionment sometimes with the institution. And I'm talking more about the harsh institutions. Why do you think the, the, the word evangelical seems to be under fire or make so many uncomfortable? What is it about right. that right now? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> uh, evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in record numbers. And I think that has a lot of moderate Christians or spiritual but not religious people kind of scratching their heads and wondering how that sort of equates. I think evangelicals related to politics, conservative politics, uh, more than religion in, in, you know, in the sort of general mainstream media sense. So I think it makes people wary. Okay, you heard it there. People are wary of religions and specifically with her childhood faith. Let's discuss this now uh, as pastors. I have people joining me now here. Kevin Shepard, pastor of Glad Tidings Church and Dagmar Morgan Sinclair, a pastor of The Meeting House. Now, of course, I mean, people across all denominations are feeling a little bit of this pinch here. Uh, uh, whether it's how media portrayals look like or people individually wrestling out, People are, dis there's a disenchantment going on. Uh, how is your church dealing with this? And Dagmar, I'll go to you after. Yeah, yeah it, I think this is a long-term process that we've got to correct. We're created in the image of God, mm. which means we're created to be a visible representation of the invisible God. And we don't do that very well sometimes. And as an institution, the church has not done that very well. We need to reflect God's grace and his compassion and his frankly, Jesus's radical inclusivity better. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to, one of our core values is nurturing belonging, trying to radically include people that feel excluded and like they don't belong right now. And, and Dagmar, what do you think about that? I agree, and I think that's really well said. The, I think our approach needs to be come as you are. And I think people sometimes feel they have to have arrived at a certain point before they can even walk through the door. Mm -hmm. And that's really not what Jesus taught. And so I think welcoming people and allowing us to have conversation and live in the questions a little bit, that we're all struggling to figure it out. We're all human. And I'll, I'll go to both of you on this. How much of this debate is really about people wrestling with not necessarily the truths in, in the gospel or in the Bible, but the person administering it? They, they love what they're reading, but they don't like the vibe that guy or woman has given. How much of that is really at stake? Dagmar, I'll go to you first. Yeah, the, I think that is, you know, that's true. I think that, you know, Christianity can be great except for all the Christians. <laughs> because we're that. not perfect and mm -hmm. I think that it can be challenging and when you're in a place where you feel you've been shamed, or where you've not been accepted because something isn't perfect about you, then again, we're back at that come as you are mm -hmm. is where we should be coming from as a church when we're welcoming people into our place. That's None of us are done. That's yeah, I agree. And uh, you know, perception determines relationship. Mm -hmm. So if I perceive you as threatening or judgmental or difficult, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna wanna be in relationship with you. Yeah. But if I perceive you as gracious and loving and kind and welcoming and inviting, then I'm going to be open to having some sort of relationship. And I think we've got a big perception problem, even if it's, you know, not all true. I think we've got a perception problem that we don't, we're not relating people or at least appearing like we are 
loving and gracious like Jesus had taught us to be. So you talk about perception problem. How do we now bring what someone could say are religious extreme views from a book ages ago into a 2019 context? How do we build those bridges? Uh, Dagmar, I'll go to you, Pastor Kevin. Yeah, I think that it's just sort of bringing to life that, you know, Jesus taught through story and how do those stories apply? And I think that really our teaching has to give people the modern context. We have to explain the history behind it and what was happening during that time frame when each scripture was written mm -hmm. and then explain how that sort of connects to today. And it really is relevant, but it can be hard to see some sometimes in the language that is used. Yeah, I would say, you know, there's the way that Jesus lived and taught, some of the things he said are extreme and they seem strange. There's a difference between though, um, the things that he's extreme about. He's extreme about grace and extreme in his compassion, extreme in mercy and extreme in love um, and never supports extremism. Mm -hmm. So, or extremists, as we would define that, you know, a pejorative, term relative to somebody aggressively or blindly supporting a religious ideology or taking down some sort of political stance. Jesus never did that. In fact, the Romans were so oppressive in those days and all his followers wanted him to speak against them and rail against them. He didn't do that. Mm -hmm. He actually invited people to another way of living, wow. a way that's full of grace and full of truth and full of mercy and full of goodness. And I think it's about the invitation and an invitation to a different life a different way of living that's that's full of that. I have like 10 seconds to throw this in, but I think it's the big question and I'll go Pastor Dagmar and Pastor Kevin. How much of this is that we got the conversation, this debate all wrong, that it's not even about getting to know religion or people wrestling out religion, that the gospel is about being in relationship with a man named Jesus, not about do's, thou shalt not sin a religion, that it's, it's the whole perspective is wrong. Uh, do we need to reform this argument, this whole conversation? Absolutely, and I think that the relationship is again that we're journeying together. We, none of us are there yet. We're going through this together with Jesus. He's in it with us today, alive, yeah. talking to us, and how do we use that to help us move forward? Everyone's invited. We're just at different places along the journey. We're, we're not building fences to keep people out. Jesus is the well at the center and we gotta draw people in. My friends, thank you so much for spending time. Awesome. Thanks so much. It's not just Christianity and Islam that need to keep their religions in check. We speak with a multi-faith panel of leaders on how they respond to extremism in the name of religion. Coming soon to context, China and its human rights abuses. Canadians Kevin and Julia Garrett were unjustly detained by China. Their own perspective on diplomacy through captivity. That's coming soon. So what turns ordinary people into religious extremists? Are people then justified when they choose to run from their religion? That's a question we'll pose to our faith panel today. We have Rabbi Jordan Cohen of Temple Anche Shalom and Rahil Raza from Muslims Facing Tomorrow. And our own Sheldon Neal as well, putting on his pastor's hat. Sheldon leads all nations worship assembly when he is not at contact. It's nice to have you all on. Yeah. Good to be here. Okay, Rabbi, let me start with you. Let's talk about extremes in your faith tradition. What are you seeing? Um, we're seeing it all over the place. You know, it, it's ours is an interpretive tradition, and that's really positive in the sense that it allows us to apply the teachings of our traditions to wherever, whenever um, we live and to make it relevant. But at the same time, when you give people the opportunity to interpret, you end up with a lot of different interpretations, mm -hmm. and sometimes those interpretations can be dangerous. And it depends on who's embracing it and how they understand, and, and uh, more the authority, too, of who's teaching. Mm -hmm and often the extremists are coming out of schools where they're being taught 
extremism, hmm. and that's the concern. Raheel, that, uh, that word extremism, uh, I think people probably unfairly associate with Muslim people a lot of the time because of what we see in the media. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, is there any fair characterization in that? Well, there is extremism. Of course, there yeah. is fair characterization. There's extremism in every faith. Sure. And so, you know, Islam is no exception here. But on the issue of religious freedom that we are talking about, when forced religiosity impinges on faith, hmm. it's no longer about God or faith. It's no longer about worship. It's about power, patriarchy, and politics. Hmm. And that's what we see in theocracies like Saudi Arabia and Iran, where religion is so forced upon the women especially mm -hmm. that they lose their spirituality they lose the context they lose the freedom to worship as they have been entitled to since the day the faith was born so then really is it, is it a culture issue then well in these countries culture and religion are intertwined okay they impinge I mean uh, you know I'm so glad that Rahaf is in Canada and you know I, I support her freedom but there are thousands of women in Iran and in Saudi Arabia who are living through that culture right. because there it is one thing uh, you know the culture and religion are so intertwined that they don't separate mm -hmm. the two so they are oppressed sure. by religiosity sure Sheldon, we are not immune from this conversation. Right. Uh, let's talk about this, what you're seeing in the Christian tradition. Yeah, I mean, one that stands out, you know, just at the top of my head is really the treatment of women, their place in the worship experience, their ability to have a voice in Christian expression, whether it be in leadership or just mm -hmm. as a congregant. But what I see time and time again, it, those who are really pressing that type of viewpoint in leadership um, kind of positions and teaching their congregations, it's really about properly interpreting the scripture and oftentimes those extremist kind of views that are taught from maybe congregation to others it really goes down to someone who's literally extracted one single verse without looking at the verses that come after or before or really its historical context mm -hmm. to say well listen it's not saying for example women be silent but what was going on at that right. time what group was he talking to and why was that necessary so then are we relying too heavily on people to teach us these traditions instead of learning them on our own do we find that there's a disconnect there for people to to study and know on their own, Rabbi? I don't think it's helpful to do it on your own because then you've got no framework or context of, and especially of the history, and especially the fact that we're often dealing with scriptures that are originally coming from languages that people don't understand. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same time, to rely on you know the teachings of any one teacher can sometimes lead you in sure. in a direction that isn't necessarily as authentic as you might want it to be and we see that happening a lot so Rahil, what can we do we live in canada we're multicultural how do we teach how do we learn together uh, in a way that is not extreme well, we um, look at the softer, gentle aspects, and we also, I mean, I can so relate to what you're saying, the historical context. And in Islam, this is a critically important because the historical context of some of the verses that were for the 7th and 8th century don't apply in the 21st century. So we have to be able to look at it and say, let's move into the 21st century with the, with the you know, context context with the blessing of what the larger message was mm. and so you know it doesn't have to be dogma it doesn't have to be word by word and this is what happens with the extremists is that they take it out of context sure. you know they'll just pick up a line sure. out of context and that does not have the same relevance so in terms of women's rights this is particularly an issue what we need to do is educate in in reference to the 21st century understand and interpret 
in reference to the 21st sure. century. I think one thing that also has changed from, I can only speak from my faith, from what we see in the scriptures is that the teachings that Jesus did with his disciples and even that was taught, it was much more of a dialogue. Uh, truth was shared, questions were asked, and it was uh, spoken in that type of context. One scripture says, let's reason together, which means let's sit down and walk through this. I think what's happened between then and now, it's become a us and me and you sitting down versus you sit there, be silent, and listen to me as I tell you what to do, right, right. which is not an adequate reflection of what God's heart is or even what our scripture really represents. Yeah. So we need to bring discussion back to faith and faith development and growing. It's great to have you all here today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us today. We unpacked a lot and we'll continue this conversation and other programs coming up. May your own personal faith journey be one of love, sound mind and peace. We'll see you all next week.